0: Hello and welcome to Series 3, Episode 13 of Out with Susie Ruffle. I hope that you've had a good week. Uh, I have had an okay week. I I got back on stage this week for the first time, which was really exciting and thrilling to be doing stand-up again, just in a little room above a pub at my friend's brilliant comedy night. And yeah, I I think I was funny. Um, I'm really excited to do my job again um, and uh, people laughed and I felt wonderful afterwards, so so that's good. Hopefully the audience did too. Just to let you know, uh, I am back out on the road uh, in the autumn, finishing off the tour that I started. Well, it feels like I started it like 100 years ago, but it was back in 2019. Remember that time, guys? Uh, so I'm back out on tour if you if you feel like that's something that you'd like to do uh, let me give you let me let you know where I'm going that would be useful wouldn't it I, I mean I'm actually having to go on my own website to find out where I'm going I mean I really should I really should be more organized okay so I'm going to. Cambridge Junction, I'm going to Brighton Comedia, I'm going to Blackburn, the Darwin Library Theatre, I'm going to Colville, the Century Theatre, Crawley, Hawth Theatre, Blackheath Halls, the Milton Keynes Stables, the Marine Theatre in Lyme Regis, Great Torrington Arts Centre, that's the Plough, uh, the Watermark in Ivy Ridge, Reading South Street. I've got two nights there. I'm doing Portsmouth New Theatre Royal, which is the biggest tour show I've ever done by myself, which I'm uh, very excited for and a little bit scared for because uh, it's my hometown gig. So maybe if you live near there, you'd like to come along. Then I'm also doing the Mill Art Centre in Banbury, Colchester Art Centre and East Grinstead Mead Theatre Uh, If you live near there and maybe you've enjoyed the podcast but you haven't seen my stand-up before, maybe come along. Hopefully you'd really enjoy it too and if you have seen my company before then hopefully you'd want to come again. I didn't mean to make that sound as awkward as it did but hey, here we are. Um, Thank you so much to all the people that got in touch after last week's episode. It seemed that uh, Susie McCabe's episode really touched a lot of you and it really did for me too. Lots and lots of messages about her lovely nan. And uh, if you haven't listened to that one, I highly recommend it. It's a great conversation, and I think Susie is just brilliant. We've got another excellent episode for you today. I'm so excited to share it. I've been wanting to get Lady Phil on the podcast for quite some time, and it was such a thrill to talk to her and to yeah hear her speak about equality and inclusion. And I I just think she's amazing. And so I think you're going to really enjoy this one. Uh, but before we get to that, as always, we have our listener emails, which which are really important to me as well. Okay, here we go. Hi Susie. I wanted to share my coming out story with you. As a 19 year old, I've grown up in a world that's increasingly more accepting of queer identities. I had gay neighbors for a few years as a child, but had been told by my family that they were just good friends, such a cliche. I realized that gay men existed when I was 11, when my friend cried that Tom Daly had a boyfriend, not out of homophobia, but jealousy. I think this was something important, I wasn't introduced to being gay as a bad thing, purely just that my friend was jealous that her crush was dating someone else, and that someone else happened to be a man. Few months after learning about gay men, I came to the realization that women could be gay too. I never understood my friends having crushes and thought that their lustings over One Direction and JLS were fake. But after learning about the existence of gay people, I started to realize that the feelings I had about Katy Perry and Rita Ora were the same as my friend's feelings about boys. My friend group at school, and in general, have been very LGBTQ plus friendly. I came out as bisexual in year eight, and then as a lesbian in year nine. I'm proud to say that I've faced very little homophobia at school, just the occasional comment. I had my hair cut, a similar style to you Susie, <laughs> at the start of year 10, and have kept my hair short ever since. I was fairly open about being gay in school, as were a few other students, and had an overall positive experience with this. However, the experience with my parents was different. I came out to both my parents at the same time age 16, about two and a half years ago. I told them I'm gay and we cried and hugged, but a few days later my mum told me that we needed to talk. She then spent what felt like a few hours, but was probably about 15 minutes, telling me why I wasn't gay, that I'd been influenced by the media, that it was a trend, that I was too immature for a man and I didn't know what I was talking about. She told me I wasn't allowed to tell anybody else because I'd come to regret it when I was older. I was crying throughout this, and I couldn't come up with anything in response. I remember hiding in my room for a few days, eventually mum and I got some sort of relationship back. I don't know exactly how this is built up, but it's now a strange relationship in which we just don't discuss romance. I think she thinks my gay phase is over, we don't talk about it. Listening to the wealth of queer content available online is a blessing. It gives me hope for a happy future, and I don't care whether my parents are involved in that future or not, it's their loss not mine. Thank you for being part of that positivity and representation. You're a true glimmer of hope through the darker times. Love, Jay. Thank you so much for saying that. I'm really pleased that uh, that this podcast has been a glimmer of hope through that. And it sounds like you also have an excellent haircut. I think you're right that the world is increasingly more accepting of queer identities, but you know sometimes people that are in older generations do take a bit longer to come round. I know that that's true of, of some of the folk in my family. But we, we sort of got there in the end. And whether you do or don't, as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. But thank you so much for taking the time to email in. I really appreciate you listening to the podcast and you, yeah, taking time to sit down and write to me. Let's have another email. Hi Susie. I hope you're doing well. My name is Emily. I'm a 21-year-old transgender woman. I was a latecomer to your podcast and almost finished season two and I'm loving every minute of it. Listening to the stories of your guests and listeners during these strange and scary times have been a real comfort and I've never felt more part of this big old LGBTQIA plus community of ours. I put off writing to you for quite some time because I felt like there wasn't much to say about my queer journey. I realised I was trans when I was 15, I came out to my parents at 17 and I've been living as a woman ever since. I started hormone treatment a couple of months ago, yay, and while it hasn't been easy, Most people in my life have been nothing but accepting and affirming of my identity, given a little time to adjust. Given my relatively cushy ride so far, I didn't see the point of writing in to share my story. However, at some point I noticed how often guests and listeners brought up the feelings of shame surrounding their sexual identities. This has made me realize something about myself that I haven't heard many other people talk about. I'm proud to be trans and to be a woman. However, I feel tremendous shame about my sexuality because I'm also a lesbian. I've always had feelings for women even before transitioning but I feel like I cannot talk openly about my experience of sex and my attraction in the same way some cis queer people can. For me this is because of the never-ending torrent of transphobic sentiment online and in the British media, particularly surrounding laws that would result in greater inclusion of trans people in society. These laws have been portrayed as a threat to cisgender women's safety and we trans women as deceivers and perverts who would harm our fellow women given the chance. We've been relentlessly scapegoated in the media to draw up resistance to these laws without any concern for how broadcasting these horrible accusations may affect our mental well-being and our safety. It is for this reason that I'm scared to embrace my sexual identity, scared to wear my little lesbian heart on my sleeve. I'm afraid that I'll be spat at and labelled a pervert or a rapist simply for loving women. Having found myself recently single, these anxieties have been on my mind more and more. I'm afraid to put myself out there in the dating scene again, worried what people will think of me when they see my photo on a dating app. Will they think I'm a monster because the media have told them that I am? I'm invading women's spaces, dominating women's sports and eroding the category of lesbian. Needless to say, these are all spurious claims. I just wanted the opportunity to share my fears and insecurities with a hopefully understanding community and to express the harm that the current handling of trans issues in British media does to trans individuals. Only time will tell if things get better but for now I find comfort in listening to the stories of your guests and listeners and they give me hope that a fulfilling future may be possible for a young woman like me. Thanks again for all that you do. I hope this podcast keeps going for a long time and we get to hear from more trans guests in future. Well thank you so much for taking the time to email in Emily. I think you're absolutely right the way that the british media have treated our trans brothers and sisters is utterly appalling and disgusting and the drumming up of the idea that 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 trans women are somehow a threat to community is just it's so upsetting and so disappointing and so disgusting and then when i see that from people within our own community it just makes me sick i hope that in some way this podcast is making you realize that our community does have open arms for our trans brothers and sisters i really hope that you feel that and i hope that you know, when the time's right, you have a, a successful time when you go out d- dating people, of course, it's, you know, I think it's, it's so important to have these conversations, and you're absolutely right, I work, I'm working really hard to get more and more trans people on the show, I really want to be able to share stories of absolutely everyone within our community, because everyone in our community is special, and it's really important that everyone gets sort of their moment um, on this podcast. Uh, so the listeners at home can feel like they get their moment too. But thank you so much, Emily, for emailing in and for and for putting some really important words onto the page for us all to to listen to and all to think about. Right, let's get on to today's interview with the marvelous Lady Phil. Uh, before we begin, I just want to put out a a, a little warning. During the interview, uh, Lady Phil uses a, a racist offensive slur in recounting a story. And I just wanted to let you know in case today you feel like you don't want to hear that. Um, So I'm just letting you know before we get into it. But here it is, the conversation that I had with the brilliant Lady Phil. I am truly honoured to welcome today's guest. Phil Apoku Jimma, or as she's commonly known, Lady Phil, is a remarkable woman. She is a crucial voice in British and global intersectional equality. The CEO of the Kaleidoscope Trust, a charity that campaigns for human rights of LGBTQ people in countries where they face discrimination. Also, many of you will of course be aware that she is also the executive director and co-founder of UK Black Pride. Lady Phil has and continues to work tirelessly for equality and freedom for all but it's more than that it's about people having the chance to live openly fearlessly joyfully for all queer people to be celebrated I'm truly inspired by the work that she does and honestly so thrilled that she's taken the time to sit down and chat with me today welcome to the show Lady Phil
1: Oh my gosh, what an introduction. I'm like, I'm listening. I'm thinking, yes, yes. Who is this woman? She sounds amazing. I want to be her. I want to be with her. I've got great news for you. You are her. So it's a good start. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I'm really, really looking forward to our conversation. And how are you today? I'm good. My day has been fast pacing, and you know I've managed to get everything done. And then after this, I'm going to have a nice start and chill. Very nice. But how are you today, though? Do you know, what? I'm
0: pretty good. I'm pretty good. I, you know, it work's back to normal in some respects. I've got my first live gig tomorrow night, which feels quite exciting to be back out on stage and be back out, hopefully making people laugh. But yeah, I'm feeling feeling very good. I've spent my day. Reading articles about you—that's been my day. My day has been very Lady Phil orientated. Oh, I'm saying
1: sorry from now.
0: <laughs> no, no, I've, I've i've it's been brilliant. I always wonder where to begin with these conversations because you've achieved so much and you do so many brilliant things. And I obviously want to get to the Kaleidoscope Trust and also UK Black Pride. But let's start sort of right at the beginning. I know that you grew up. In Lee Valley, is that right? Yeah, Lee
1: Valley. Well, I went to school in Lee Valley, Cross and grew up in Hertfordshire area. Yeah. And what was that like? Oh you see I guess even before then Susie I I was raised in like Woodbury Down Estates so born in Islington and then we moved out to Edmonton and then from Edmonton is where I call it I was shipped out to Hertfordshire to this school which I was the only black face and it was like Oh, my gosh. It was like a, a scene out of the Get Out film. You know, are they going to want my eyes, my ears, my colour, my, my my speed, my agility? It, it just felt so weird because there was nobody else that looked like me. And, of course, you know, you make some friends, but I was bullied through school because of being black. You know, there would be... They'd say things like, oh, God didn't finish painting you because your palms and the bottom of your feet are white and you were supposed to be white anyways. You know, black people don't exist and or go back to your mud huts. And kids can be really awful. And if you're not of that strong mind or strong willed or don't have a support network around you, this, this is where we see so many things happen, you know, kids fall into depression. But for me, I you know, my turning point at school was really when I started actually, what I call it, arguing, challenging the teachers. Yeah. Because the teachers would do things like teach us about the Battle of Hastings, 1066, King the Eighth's wives and so forth. And I'm like, actually, where are we learning about slavery or enslavement or colonisation or where I'm actually from? And I guess for me, the school curriculum didn't speak to me. It didn't make me feel that I or my parents or my, my whole sort of network contributed to this country that's called England, United Kingdom. So when you don't feel that you are part of something there's a sense of not belonging. So you're constantly searching for that. And you're constantly trying to find a place to fit in. And it wasn't at school. Although, you know, I came out with pretty okay grades, but it was a lonely time. It was, yeah, school was lonely.
0: That sounds like it must have been not only very isolating, but also exhausting. Yeah. I've never described it that
1: way, but that's a a brilliant way of describing it. It was, it was exhausting because it was relentless. It was every day. And when do you have time to breathe and be a child? Yeah. You don't know what else it looks like if that's the everyday scenarios that you go through and then, you know, you might say something to your mum or dad and they'll be like, you know, just ignore it. Cause obviously they've dealt with their own challenges of coming to this country. And it was like books, 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 read, 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 you know, understand that education is important. So childhood i'm not sure maybe this is why i'm a bit silly at times because you know reliving something that i should have been doing like 40 years ago
0: i think it's important i'm pleased to hear that you're sort of childish and silly sometimes because you've got to have the opportunity to to embrace that part of you certainly if you didn't get an opportunity to do that when you were little it's so sad and it sort of makes so much sense you know we've had so many conversations on on the podcast and and often with sort of queer people of color but then also you know, lots of different types of queer people or trans folk or non-binary folk where because of there being this other thing or otherness that some, you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone, but some people have told me they didn't have the chance to really embrace that childhood and that joyfulness that, you know, someone like me as a cis white girl experienced, you know,
1: abundantly, which just feels so unfair. Yeah. It's not, unfair because it's something that you've inherited it's something which is seen as um you know quote unquote normal the mm. only thing that is you know upsetting is that others don't get to experience life and navigate it the same way you've been able to you know and it wasn't all doom and gloom I had this amazing friend and I always say I don't say her full name but Haley. you know if ever Haley is watching, listening, she was the person that was the, was the first one to come to me and say, do you want to go to the townhouse? It's a place where we go dancing. And, um, you know, she was amazing because she just sort of took me as I am. I hate the term. I don't see colour. But as a child, you know, she didn't see that. She just saw us as two girls that wanted to go out and, and and play and um yeah but her family didn't really like me around the house and I remember her having a disagreement with her older brother about why did you bring that gollywog in our house and why have you brought her in she belongs on a jam jar and um I remember her arguing with him and he told her just shut your bloody mouth, blah, 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 Other, a few other colourful words. And I thought, she stood up for me. It wasn't what he said. It's the fact that she stood up for me. And it made me think, she's my friend. She's actually somebody that wants to be by my side. And obviously now I've grown up, we know what solidarity looks like. We know what allyship looks like. And that is exactly what she gave me back then.
0: I read that in an article that you that you wrote today about you talking to the teachers and saying you know why are we learning about Henry VIII and why are we learning about the Battle of Hastings and why aren't we learning about you know important stuff crucial stuff relevant stuff and so it feels like maybe you didn't have the word for it then but that sort of little activist or Mm -hmm. you know or being aware of activism was sort of deep rooted in you from the get-go
1: yeah absolutely and I think that By virtue of being born a girl, being born black, being born to parents working class, being born to parents who came over as migrant workers, I couldn't not be anything else but to challenge what was different or not accepted as who we are. And, yeah, some may have called it rebel or ever so radical at school or disruptive, but I call it challenging the status quo. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that's the only time things change. Yeah. Thinking about maybe your your teenage years, and certainly, you know, from my perspective, that's probably when I realised that I was attracted to women did you have room to do that whilst you were battling these other things or using your words challenging uh, the status quo with these other things was there space for you to
1: to to feel that or to experience that or not Yeah so it's funny you say that because I think when I was at primary school and this was before we moved to Hertfordshire there was somebody called Marjorie you know can you imagine Marjorie and Phyllis Uh, you know what what two names Um, and I remember absolutely loving everything about Marjorie I mean Everybody wanted to be Marjorie, be next to Marjorie. You know, she'd speak to me, and I was like, oh, and this is primary school. So that sort of infatuation was at the time probably thought of as she's the Queen's Bee's knees and she's absolutely amazing. But when I went to secondary school, you know, I often thought about Marjorie, but I thought, I wonder what she's doing oh my gosh, she was so attractive. You know, the same way you start to see people and think they're beautiful or he's handsome or they're gorgeous. I would think of Marjorie in that way. But then I brushed it out because I think what was priority for me to do was to not just survive, was to thrive in a way that my blackness came into question all the time, that that I was fighting that racist, you know, rhetoric, the racism, structural and systemic, which existed in schools, colleges and universities. So I guess I had a bit of time when I was younger, but didn't know what that looked like. Didn't really have the vernacular to describe it. But when I got older, then yes, in my my 16, 17 and 18s, but that's when secondary school had finished.
0: Hmm. And did you go on to college then? If you were or on to university? I went to
1: college. Was that still a very white place? Um, no because by then I had moved out and you know that's a whole other journey. I had moved back into London because I think that my experience of being in Hertfordshire just didn't sit right with me. So where I started to read so many books and wanted more knowledge and I was so hungry for knowledge and education, I came back into London and I placed myself in the heart of things. And um, yeah, I went to college, got pregnant, had an amazing, beautiful daughter. Um, It was a... (sighs) It was a tumultuous relationship with the father. There was like lots of domestic violence and um things that just didn't just weren't right. And I think it's because it wasn't right about me. I was wearing several masks and layers and lying and pretending to myself. And then I came out at 21. Oh my gosh, I'm that's like 20 years ago. Yeah. 21 plus I came out and left this sort of, quote unquote, pretend marital home with nothing. I mean, literally with nothing because of what happened that day. And I went to a safe house. I had to learn how to spend. And this is like a real fast forward. You know, I had to learn how to spend my own money, you know, from buying your own tampons or sanitary pads to buying cutlery and readiness for a new place that you're going to be living in with a child in tow. Your, your
0: daughter would have been about three then.
1: Yeah, two and a half.
0: So that is full on.
1: Yeah, it it really was. But you see, I think that <sighs> And I'm surprised I'm really speaking to you about this because I'm not that open about the journey unless I'm speaking to like a next generation of of young people who have already gone through some really challenging times around homelessness and, you know, families which have ostracized them. But maybe it's because you make me feel comfortable. It was a journey, but it's things that have shaped me. It's things that have made me realise when I am fighting for equality, freedom and justice, we take this intersectional approach. It's not just about being LGBTQIA. It's not just about being a woman. It's not just about being black. It's not just about being disabled or differently abled. It's not just about being young or working class. It's all of it because they all have factors that play out in different ways.
0: Yeah, and it's slightly different structures that might be in the way because of those different facets of of what you're made up to be.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I am really comfortable in my skin and I'm really unapologetically me now, but it's been a sort of 20-year journey so when people think, "Oh my gosh, she's so confident. Oh, I love what you do." I'm thinking, "Wow, you know, maybe 20 years ago if you'd met me, there was a broken woman who was a single parent living in a one room with just about enough money to go to Quick Save or had to make a decision as to do you get on the bus and use the money to take your child to nursery? Or do you walk even though it's raining and then you've got some money for later on in the evening? You know, people don't see that side of things. They don't know it, but why should they know it? And I don't want anyone to really feel sorry for me because there's so much in the world that's going on.
0: Yeah, it's funny you should say that about how people look at you. Cause I told a couple of friends that I was interviewing you today. And they were like, oh, Lady Phil. Oh, yeah, she's so brilliant. She's so amazing. She's so inspiring. Oh, I'm really jealous that you're chatting to Lady Phil. And so it's... Um, but I think me hearing that story, uh, you know, of your life and the journey that you've had, you know, it makes sense because of how you can and do connect with folk and how you do, you know, I, I was watching different things about you today, and obviously like I know I know about the charities that you support and stuff like the Albert Kennedy Trust or AKT now. And it makes perfect sense that the warmth and also the wit and the intelligence and how you can reach across to people, you know, that journey has sort of shaped you. And so it must have been hard, but here you are now, I guess, is what, I, is what I'm saying. So something I'm always interested in. So just thinking about you sort of coming out and having a child, and that must be a whole other other thing as well, to sort of navigate how you would do that. And I'm sure there were some, but not loads of queer parents at that point either. What was it like for you when you sort of went into a lesbian space for the first time?
1: Oh, my gosh. I went to this place called Hemel in Hemel, Hempstead and... I walked in and it was like, wow, there are women dancing with women. There are women kissing each other. There was femmes, lipstick, lesbians. There were studs or butches. There were in-betweens. And it just, it felt so liberating and freeing although I was extremely nervous and again you know Hemel was a, a very white area so when I went into this place you know there were the odd few black women that were there and you know we'd acknowledge each other say hi you know oh my gosh I can't believe you're here and I was sort of smiling with everybody I mean, they must've thought, oh my gosh, where has this woman come from? She's grinning and it looks a bit weird right now, but liberating is the word. You walk into a space with people who share the same, you know, the same commonalities that you have. You know that the struggles or the celebrations will be the same and it felt good to be in that space. And you know, the music, cheesy as it may have been it was great to have a little boogie and flirt as well oh my gosh (laughs) reminiscing reminiscing take you back yeah
0: and how long after that obviously there's a journey between you coming out and now being you know this this voice in sort of lgbtq global equality but how long after you coming out were you sort of involved in
1: activism for queer folk So I would say that if UK Black Pride is 16 years old, then before that there was Block, which is B-L-U-K, Black Lesbians in the UK, that was five years before that. And then a year or two, I believe, was just before you know I met my then ex-partner. So yeah, we're talking about. Good 20, 21
0: 22 years and I read a little bit about was it black black lesbians UK yeah and was that just so I'm understanding exactly what it is so I looked up bits and pieces about it online but was that sort of a queer meetup?
1: Yeah, very much so. And it started off as an online portal. We'd have various streams of conversations. Chat rooms. Yeah, that's right. Old school. Like a MySpace, but a little bit more sophisticated than that. Yeah, so... I decided with again my ex to take some of this offline because people were talking about having a sports day wanting to meet up wanting to see people so I was running and not everyone knows a -a five-a-side football team of black lesbians oh my gosh the worst thing I could ever do I wanted to be a cheerleader and the fighting that went on not that I'm advocating fighting but when lesbians don't get Their way on the football pitch. It wasn't cute. I think we got (laughs) thrown off of various tournaments, and then they said, Phil, it's about time we got ourselves a real coach. And then they did. And did you say, Yeah, do you know what? I'm fine with that. (laughs) Yeah, I said, I'm really happy for you to go ahead with that. You guys do that. Good for you. (laughs) But we had netball, we had all sorts of things. And I think that group, And it's a shame it's not around now. That group really helped many of us connect. We were spread all over the UK. We would talk about everything from sexual health and reproductive rights to how to use women's toys to you know how do you cook your plantain or rice and peas or jerk chicken it was everything but it was our voices and our stories it took a life of its own when we came offline we met in person and we connected and that's how UK Black Pride was born
0: And then with UK Black Pride, that obviously includes everyone in the LGBTQ plus community. Now, did that happen organically?
1: Yeah, I think that with Block, we had to find our own space and voice. And I think at a time where, you know, there was a lot of work, rightfully so, happening around HIV and AIDS, and some lesbian women felt that you know, we're not being spoken to or about, or actually when we did have the HIV and AIDS epidemic, lesbians were there also at the forefront supporting our brothers, nursing them back to health or seeing loved ones lose their lives. And I guess that there was a disconnect in women's voices and men's voices and not even touching on trans and non-binary yet because non-binary was language, which was kind of introduced to us later. Did it happen organically? I think no, I went to several black prides in the US and I realized oh, right. it's got to be bigger. You know, yeah. Atlanta Black Pride, Washington, DC, Black Pride, New York Black Pride, yeah, you know, Chicago Black Pride. And I saw how they operated and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so powerful. Can you imagine all the different voices and the different faces, the different shades of black and brown that could be in a space and celebrate together whilst also still challenging. So, you know, I connected with other groups, other people, and they brought their knowledge to the table and helped UK Black Pride grow and flourish. And now it's huge. It's it's brilliant, isn't it? It's
0: wonderful. It's got I mean, I know that you did loads of stuff online this year and I sort of keep across it on Twitter. And from, from like, you know, the outsider looking in, it feels like it's something that is so wonderfully validating, but also there seems to be such a sense of community. And, you know, I'm sorry to say it's something that, unfortunately, I think Pride or London Pride or whatever we call it now, I, I feel like that doesn't, it doesn't quite have, unfortunately, but it does feel like UK Black Pride has a sense of community that is remarkable.
1: Yes, I love that. Community is what UK Black Pride's about. Connection is what UK Black Pride's about. The collective voice, the solidarity, the understanding that our bodies have been the struggle, right? We've been used as political pawns in certain instances. We've been discriminated against as LGBT plus people. There are so many different things that you know, take shape and form the way we navigate our lives. So for us, pride has to be about a protest. Pride has to be about people over profit. Pride has to be censoring those voices of black and brown queer people in our communities, and it should never be anything else than that. It has to be by us and for us. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's an incredible thing.
1: Yeah, I think so too.
0: (laughs) Could we talk a little bit about the Kaleidoscope Trust? Because I know that's sort of a massive part of what you do. And and, I like that you said when we did a panel the other day, you said you have have your gay job and your day job. (laughs) (laughs) With UK Black Pride being your gay job. And so your day job. So um, I I sort of mentioned it in the top, what the Kaleidoscope Trust do, they campaign for human rights for LGBTQ plus people across the globe. But could you sort of put it into your
1: words, what it is that you do? Yeah, sure. So we are an international LGBT plus human rights charity, and much of our work is about convening these conversations with those that walk through the corridors of power. And that's very much around diplomats, MPs, missions, and other such institutions and bodies where we can speak to them with our human rights defenders right at the center of this, and let them know how the laws, which are colonial era laws, are impacting their very lives. So, Kaleidoscope Trust is about legal reform and changing the laws, changing hearts and minds, and and changing the way that people have access to various services. But of course, we can't do this alone. You know, you've got lawyers, you've got Human Dignity Trust, which are amazing, that are the actual lawyers and barristers. You've got other bodies which do some of the other groundwork. But Kaleidoscope Trust, we get to the roots of things. So it means we are working on the ground with activists and civil society to support their organisations so look at how we are helping sustain their organisations, because very often, you know, in countries in the global south, it's one or two people holding everything together. It's unlocking funding so the resource goes to the right place for them to continue their really important work and it's done with an intersectional lens again meaning that we take an approach that women and girls climate change different backgrounds cultures heritages traditions come into play when we do our work but we never center who we are as Scope Trust, because the work of the activists and civil society is more important.
0: Right, so it's about, it's more about sort of supporting the work of the activists in their sort of homelands and in, in helping them gain the legal
1: rights absolutely we are the ones helping bridge the gap so mm-hmm. if we know we've got a, a parliamentarian or a diplomat that is really interested in wanting to find out more about how he or she or they can support then absolutely we make that connection um, and we allow them to tell the story and speak to their lived experience before we do at kaleidoscope trust as an organization i guess we are The conduits, right? Hmm. That's the way that I would put it. But we also do our own work. We try to diversify funding streams. We fundraise to keep our staff going so we can do that work. And Much of our funding is through high net worth donors or corporates and brands and also the government's. They fund us to do the work that we do, you know, thankfully, and um, we work closely together. But I guess if I had to sum it up, our strapline really is about everyone should be free, safe and equal, You can't be safe if you're not free. You can't be equal if you're not safe. So for us, free, safe and equal and living without fear of the violence that rains upon LGBT plus people's bodies and minds in countries where they still have laws, you know, Whilst we work primarily in the Commonwealth, you know, that's 54 countries out of those 54 countries, 30 of them or 30 plus of them still criminalize same sex intimacy you know we've just seen in uganda where a sexual offenses bill had been passed that is going to make that so difficult for same sex couples or that or same sex intimacy to be seen as legal you know so there's even further criminalization which could be 5 or 10 years imprisonment then you've got Ghana with what's happening in Ghana you know the lockdown and shutdown of a a local safe house and even further criminalization because they're thinking of putting a private member's bill around something which is called carnal knowledge and it's 164 of their constitution which means if this goes through they will be able to scapegoat, criminalise and discriminate against LGBT plus people. Then you've got, you know, other countries which are still looking to register their organisation, but can't. And when they can't register their organisation, they can't do the work. They're stifled, they're hampered. And obviously there's lots of political sensitivities and those colonial era laws that exist. That
0: is the problem. How much of yours and Kaleidoscope's day-to-day battles are to do with colonial laws?
1: All of it. I mean, some may disagree, but I think it's all of it. Colonial era laws are not just about the criminalisation of LGBT plus people, but it's about the discrimination towards women and girls. Some of these Victorian era laws, you know, that are there... Predates so much and it was part of this empire colonialism going in and leaving particular bits of laws there and then expecting countries to speed up at the rate that Britain has. You can't do that when you're from countries that are still developing or that have had so much stolen from them and expect them to be independent and change their change their laws to meet British laws at the same time. And, you know, and going back to what we were talking about right at the top, and none of this is taught in schools. Yeah, and this is where, I guess, it's that sense of... Not knowing how things play out. And when you have ignorant people, and I'm not saying they're racist, but ignorant people that you know spout off why on earth are we giving money to this or doing you know foreign aid international development? There's a reason for that because Britain has played such a long-standing role in the subjugation of LGBT people and of black people. You know, Britain has benefited off the backs of black people where slavery is concerned, enslavement. And if it's not taught in school, then there will be children who have a sense of entitlement and privilege that they don't speak about. So we don't usualise the conversation that actually I may be the very reason why you own that stately home in, in Bedfordshire that you don't even know how you actually received it. Yeah, I'm not wanting you to feel guilty I'm just wanting you to understand that what you have access to, how are you going to help amplify others and ensure that they have the same privileges and access as well Absolutely,
0: and I think people are scared of having an uncomfortable conversation, but I think that's the fear, I think it's such a fear of people taking things personally, and I think take your upset out of it and you need to look at things on a on a grander level. This is
1: why I love what you do and how you talk and even if it's in jest and in joke you're you're really embracing and wanting to embody that you know things are wrong. You know what you've got access to or what privileges you have And how do you utilize that conversation and bringing guests onto your podcast to talk about so many different things? And if it leaves you feeling uncomfortable, it just means that fire in your belly is burning and yearning to see change. I mean, we don't want children to grow up in a world or a society that you know that they're going to be discriminated against in the next five, 10 years. We've got to start that change effect and that transformative work now. And I think that's the thing if it takes us
0: or me, for example, to get uncomfortable or like, you know, to have a conversation about, you know, let's say with a, with a trans woman and I maybe get something wrong or I say it in the wrong way. Let me have that moment where I get it wrong and everyone can listen. Like we can all learn together. I make mistakes all the time. I'm definitely not perfect. I'm, I'm a work in progress. But then that's something positive to
1: share. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's never about berating someone. You know, for me, I'm not going to shout you down and say, for example, if you said, oh, coloured people, I would say, Susie, that is not the approach. I'd like you to use this terminology. And if you use that in future, actually, it's harmful. It's hurtful to other people in my community. It is about us talking things through there's an education and an awareness that needs to be had that we can do this together so we're not getting angry of each other but learning from mistakes
0: yeah absolutely and i also think certainly for people of my generation it can't be down to people of color to do the teaching there's plenty of books out there that we can all get involved in. You know, everyone's read why well, I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Everyone should read it. You will learn so much and know so much and be, I don't know, be able to exist in the world as a more knowledgeable person, as a as a more understanding person. And yeah, I think that
1: that's, that's really important. Because you know, it's tiring. You know, you, you mentioned the word exhausting. It is really tiring and exhausting having to educate people around racism when racism is not my problem. You know, Google's your friend. I think that we can all do our homework in really wanting to understand difference and understand what we have Maybe you know, something that we can lend a hand to support others that don't have. Absolutely. Before we go, is UK Black Pride
0: happening this year? Is it going to be happening? Do you want to mention that it's happening? Because there might be people listening going, I want to go or I want to support somehow. Or maybe there's someone listening that's got just shitloads of money and is thinking, yeah, do you know what? I'd love to make a donation to that you great
1: know, work. Ideas, <laughs> so UK Black Pride is happening. Unfortunately, it's not going to be in person because... We couldn't realistically keep 12 to 14,000 people safe in Hagerston Park, but we will be virtual. We will be connecting with as many people. You know, last year we hit 30,000 people on one day amazing uh, it's like, that's great but we take place the second to the fourth of july the first time we're ever doing a whole weekend and there's going to be something for everybody from workshops to entertainment to djs to you know conversations around mental health good and poor mental health and also just that wonderful array of beautiful people being platformed and amplified within our communities. The theme this year is Love and Rage because we love our community, we love our people, love gives us hope, but also the rage is to really sort of symbolize that we're disappointed, we're angry, we're hurt, resurgence of Black Lives Matter, seeing people being murdered on the streets because they're black, seeing what's happening with Grenfell, Windrush and everything else, we are raging and we should be allowed to do that in a safe way that allows us to let these emotions and feelings out whilst also still knowing that we've got people that love us.
0: Well, that sounds brilliant. So it's the 2nd to the 4th of July and people can
1: find that out. Is it? UKblackpride.org.uk. Um, and there's lots of information. And so anyone that has spare cash, we will never say no unless you're really unethical, um, of course. <laughs> but, you know, please come along, donate, you know, support, sponsor, get involved, volunteer your time. You know, it takes people to make a movement. Happen and to make it better and greater. So you know we're all ears and we're all arms stretched out waiting for you to come.
0: Perfect. Before we go, I have I have one more question. It's what I ask absolutely everyone that comes on the podcast. Maybe I'm thinking about uh, that version of you that, that had left a relationship that that sounds like it you know it wasn't good for you in, in any way. And you know maybe you're by yourself and you're realizing your queerness and you're just about to start this new life. Uh, with your little girl, if you could pick up the phone and give her a bit of advice or pop an arm around her from a distance, or maybe there's someone listening that's recently been through a similar thing. If you could reach out to them, what would you say?
1: I'd say to you that you're seen, you're valuable, you're beautiful, I respect you and I love you and you are not alone. You know, the world may tell you that your blackness is not great. The world may tell you that you cannot be queer because it's an abomination. But just know that as a single mother, all of what you're thinking and feeling, write it down. Talk to somebody, keep on reading loads of books and you are going to be somebody absolutely frigging great you are going to change hearts and minds and you are going to rock this world so don't give up don't ever ever give up because you are valued you are loved and i see you that was perfect phil thank you so
0: so much That was such a brilliant conversation. I really appreciate your time. I know you are such a busy woman, but it really means a lot to me. And I know that um, we've got an amazing, sort of quite a large group of people now that are listening to this show. And I know that people are gonna really connect with this. So I thank
1: you so much for giving me your time. Thank you so much and you take care and good luck with your gig tomorrow. Thank you. I think you
0: could probably tell that I was fangirling for a lot of that interview. I just think she does such wonderful things and it's just making the world a better place and what a joy it was to have that conversation with her. I'll be back next week with another episode. I hope that you have a good week. I hope that you're doing well and I'll see you next week. Bye.